0: Hey guys, John Paulemy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, April 3rd, and this is the weekly market update. Just a reminder that anything you hear in this video or on the podcast is not investment advice. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money, it's your responsibility. So first things, um, I'm not going to go over Biden's infrastructure bill that he brought out. I considered doing it. You can go look at it yourself. Um, this particular chart here uh, is from the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget. Uh, good luck with that, I guess. But um, there is an orga- such an organization. And they've track all of these spending and do these projections about f- debt and deficits which is very interesting. I find it uh, interesting to look at and amusing. Uh, there's nothing anybody's going to really do about it. I mean, I don't understand what lever of power you could pull to change the trajectory we're on. But that's not really the point of talking about this slide. What this slide shows is the, um, and it's on their website, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, tracking the COVID response. And what this is showing you is the, Amount of uh, money, or what has been done for the response to the disease that cannot be named, that has a ninety-nine point, you know, seven percent chance of recovery if it's if you get it. This end of civilization uh, thing that we have to do all these things that we're doing, shut the economy down and restrict everybody's freedoms. But, anyways, this is. Showing that for administrative actions, and that's just things like delaying taxes, due dates, and things like that, that's uh, cost so far about $500 billion of an of an um, authorized $900 billion. So it shows you what's been authorized and then also what has actually been spent up to the date. So they, they break all this down. You can get as granular as you want. But here you have like the legislative actions. This is the encompassing the original COVID bailout during the Trump administration and a subsequent one that's been passed. So you're, you're talking about $3.6 trillion has been spent uh, of a possible $6 trillion. So these are huge numbers, folks. I mean, this, this, is, this is unprecedented. This is World War II-esque if you will. Uh, you can compare a lot of the spending on a uh, as a percent of GDP is comparable to what we did during World War II when we were obstensibly, or if you want to listen to historians or people at the time, were in a civilizational fight for survival. And um, so that's and we're doing that over uh, a, a, you know, cold and flu virus that's a little bit worse than the flu. Something else is going on here. So Federal Reserve actions, you got $120 billion a month being bought of Treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities by the Federal Reserve. They're authorized to spend up to $6 trillion. In the newsletter, I kind of expanded upon this, what j Powell has been saying that, uh, you know, yes he 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 welcomes feedback and he has heard feedback that this could all of these things these unprecedented responses could be at some point inflationary but he just doesn't they don't see it right now and they have the tools to respond so go about your business citizen we can print money and spend it on ad infinitum and there's not going to be a problem don't worry citizen All of your betters, all of the elites, all of the masters of universe have completely screwed up everything that they've ever touched. We have it under control. And most of the people want to believe that. You know, most people would rather die than think critically. Most people would rather believe the lie than look at reality. Because it's scary for some people, for most people. Because when you look at the lie, and it's exposed, then you realize that there is no big daddy or big mama government or big anybody that's going to take care of you. You have to do it yourself. So this is all fine. This is part of the whole crack up boom, uh, reflationary deal that we've been talking about. You know, all of the dominoes are lined up now. The Pretty much the requisite political support from both parties. The right people are in there. And this is what we're going to do. And then we've, you know, he sprung a uh, Biden or his handlers, whoever's handling him, because he's not really doing in charge of anything. um, A $2 trillion infrastructure bill, which if you look at, it's kind of like this COVID bill, right? Um, Only about 10 or 15% of the money actually goes for anything having to do with related to COVID, the rest is SOPs to constituencies and plugged in people and grifters and rent seekers. It's the same thing with the infrastructure bill. You know, if you look at the infrastructure bill, it addresses everything, but will fix nothing. And uh, it's, it, which is typical, right? Um, and there's people out there that are listening to this that, you know, are, are getting mad at what I'm saying because they believe in government. They believe that, you know, these people actually know what they're doing. Um, and that, uh, you know, this, this is the way we should proceed. It's an interesting article. I'll put it in the show notes by a guy I follow. He goes by, uh, his blog is called The Manhattan Contrarian. He lives in New York City and he uh, writes uh, about, uh, you know, he's not a statist. And he kind of did a pretty good article about, you know, this is the path that many other countries have went down, now, Weimar Republics, uh, Poland austria Hungary, Hungary after World War I, and they had tremendous inflations. You can't just deficit spend. You can't just spend money that you don't have and then just print, up, print it up. And that's what we're doing. These, this money is not being taxed from anyone. This money is just being created out of thin air. The Federal Reserve is buying or 80 billion dollars in, in, in treasury securities a month and, t- and 40 billion in mortgage-backed securities a month, okay? And where is it getting the money to do that? It's just creating it out of thin air. And where, where is the money coming from to, to to pay for all of this COVID relief? Now, the argument can be made and has been made. And I guess I'm empathetic to it that, you know, well, the government shut the world down, shut the gov- uh, economy down, they have a responsibility. But who is the government? It's not this. People have this view. It's just like this entity that's over here off to the side that has this cornucopia of non-ending resources. It doesn't have any resources, anything that it has, it has to take from everybody else. And then it redistributes uh, based on the political uh, situation that's current at that time in government. And they don't necessarily have to tax, you know, creating money out of thin air is slowly going to destroy the currency over time you cannot do that it's demonstrable if that was the way you could run things then why doesn't everybody do that why hasn't that been the success model is it just been it's just got you know that's that's the thing that i got out of stephanie kelton's book um she seems to i've listened to her uh interviews uh, i've read her book and when i don't understand she's the big proponent of mmt uh the deficit myth is the name of the book which i suggest you read because uh it's not a bad read she's a very good writer And she writes it in a a way that it's easy to understand. But uh, what she says, basically, or she doesn't seem to understand is that I think she thinks that her and her colleagues that came up with this MMT idea think that they stumbled on something that no one else had ever thought of. That's the impression I get when I read that. I don't know this person, but that's the impression I get. And this childlike thing, like they're so smart and nobody for... 10,000 years of civilization has ever thought that, hey, why don't we just print money out of thin air because we have the reserve currency, we issue our own currency, so it doesn't really matter. And this person has a PhD in economics. So you see, uh, I, I don't have a PhD. I've been told my whole life, whenever I've tried to apply common sense or street smarts to something, shut your mouth. You don't have an advanced education. I don't know, but I've been doing pretty good so far. And every, like I said earlier in this discussion, everything that these people have touched turns to crap. Everything. They've mucked up everything. And the people that are going to pay are you, the average person. Because this is going to feel good at first. Just like when you give a kid a pixie stick full of sugar candy. He bounces around the walls, runs around nuts. Okay, and then what inevitably happens when the sugar wears off, he collapses on the couch or in his bed and he's asleep and you're grateful because the nuttiness has stopped. The problem is that's funny. And we get some enjoyment out of that. Seeing the antics, this is not going to be funny. People's lives are going to be affected. You know, just because something is certain doesn't mean it's imminent. And that's the problem. People's time horizons, they say, well, what are you talking about? Nothing has ever happened. And that's the false trap that people fall into. You can look at the history. You cannot just create wealth out of nothing. There's no perpetual motion machines. There's nothing for free. And there are consequences to making bad decisions. So, again, I can sit here and crab about this and get off my lawn, you kids, and all that stuff, but and play the old man that's uh, you know screaming at the moon. It doesn't do any good. This is what's happening, you need to be aware of it, you need to understand that this has been done before and what happens when it does happen. You have a currency that loses its value, you have economic uh, stagnation, you have falling living standards. That will be the end result. Initially, even in Venezuela, when they started this, it was fine at first, it was fine in the Weimar Republic. Everybody thought they were getting rich in the markets. Everybody everybody was doing the same thing we're doing now. Everybody was speculating in the markets. Everybody was getting wealthy. They were cheering each other on about how wealthy they were getting. Doesn't it sound similar? Read When Money Dies. All you have to do is change the names. It's the same same type of thought process and, 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 and conversations that we're having today that people just think, wow, this is great. This is, you know, but in the end, It doesn't end. And then the problem is, is that once you start down this road, you can't stop now. Because if you stop, you'll have a deflationary collapse. And so I think the powers that be, they know this, I think. Well, I hope they know this. And I think they just hope that it doesn't go to pot on their, I don't know. I've, I've given this a lot of thought. I really don't know what they think at this point. They may be that naive. They may be that malicious. I just don't know. So uh, this is the reality check. This is what's happening. This is what's going to happen. Um, there's going to be an opportunity for us to, as speculators, to take advantage of this, to take advantage of the infrastructure spending, wasteful spending that's going to happen. Uh, and we hope to do that. But we're going to have to get out. You know, we have a train barreling down the tracks and we can only stand. in the We got to know when to get off this, uh, get out of the way so we don't get run over. So let's talk about gold. You know, you think, well, man, with all this stuff going on, why isn't gold performing better? Well, you know, we're in a a secular bull market for gold. I maintain that. And during bull markets, you have pullbacks. We've had a pullback. Back in August when gold cracked 2,000 an ounce, I mean, it became overbought. It became another tourist trap, right? All the tourists, hot money tourists came in and the gold stocks and gold got ahead of themselves so we've said before that real interest rates drive gold stocks or gold and gold stocks uh or gold and then gold stocks follow on from the price of gold obviously but this is another thing that i like to look at I, you know this is another reason why i follow twitter i mean somebody put this up on twitter i think i got this off of uh cuppy's uh twitter feed anyways this shows the Hulbert Gold Newsletter Sediment Index, which is in red. And you can see that uh, there's two ranges. At the bottom is under is when you would say that uh, sediment is very negative. And at the top, you would see when sediment is very positive. Uh, this only goes back to 2018. I didn't have time to go try to dig this up and do uh, more investigation. But typically, you know, when even the gold newsletter people are very negative, and that's their market. That's what they write their newsletters about. That's what this is tracking, right? So you're down here at, 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 at a level that's the lowest it's been in three years as far as sediment among gold newsletter writers, okay? Uh, who else is going to get negative if even the gold newsletter writers are negative? So the point is, is that when sediment gets to extremes, that's usually a buying opportunity. I didn't have the, I didn't, didn't put the chart up, but there was another part to this chart that showed what happens in the subsequent three, six-month and year timeframes when you get to these levels of negative sentiment and you usually have a positive uh, increase in gold and gold stocks. So um, I don't know what the gold bull market's over. My, my, I'm maintaining this. You know, uh, Interest rates move faster than the reported statistics on inflation. As we've talked about before, real interest rates are the difference between the 10-year treasury and the CPI. CPI is manipulated anyways, but we'll use CPI. And so, you know, treasury rates have increased quite a bit because of the anticipation of the recovery in the economy. And uh, the inf- the inflation rates have not. They only come out once a month and they're lagging indicators. So I think it'll take some time for the inflation to m- indicators to catch up. And when they do, I think rates will then uh, move back start moving more negative again I think there's still basically negative but they've become less negative so direction of the rate of change is important in addition to the actual interest rate real rate so this is just something to look at I wouldn't base my whole trading on it but if you have become you know it's not fun watching things grind lower uh you're like, well, you know, I'm going to move on to the next thing. But what is nothing's really changed that are fundamental, the fundamentals around gold, right? I just went over the tremendous amount of government spending, the debt, the necessity for the, you know, whole world, basically, or most of the world's trapped in this debt bubble, that they have, you know, no way of getting out of except for, you know, inflating the debt away. That's been the historical narrative, whether you want to look any, anywhere throughout history, it does it repeats? When governments become in, too indebted, they inflate, their, they inflate the debt away. So, um, if you look in the context of the short term, then you would be depressed about the gold price. I would say that even at you know gold, I think is around seventeen thirty an ounce right now. Even at those levels. I mean, the gold miners are making tremendous amounts of money. They're showing discipline. They're not uh, going out and going nuts uh, like they did during the last gold bull market. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's healthy to have corrections. And uh, it just sets the stage for the next move upward. I, you know, if I saw that they were going to, the government was going to get spending under control, the Federal Reserve was going to normalize rates. Yes, we would be selling gold. I don't see any of that. I don't see anything... That would be gold negative. You know, we do have an overwhelming amount, you know, inflation and deflationary forces are fighting with each other. You know, they have to keep the money pump going, obviously, because the deflationary forces are out there. Old populations, the debt bubble, okay? Um, these things, you know, technological advance, lowering prices for things. That's tugging on prices, okay? That's a overall uh, bias of deflation. But, you know, the, believe me, I do believe, as Milton Friedman said, that if they want inflation, they can print enough money to get inflation. And I believe that. So this is an article from Bloomberg. Um, I will put a link to it. This is gonna be really energy intensive the rest of the way here this week in the video. Uh, U.S. shale production to erode further. U.S. shale production is set to decline through at least 2022 as explorers resist the temptation to start drilling again despite a rally in crude, crude prices. So crude has rallied. Um, we're over $60 a barrel again because of the positive or perception of positive comments from the OPEC meeting last week. And um, I have a view that oil prices are going a lot higher and, um, over the next couple of years. And I think that we could see $75, $80 a barrel at the end of this year. And will shale respond? We'll have to see. That's a question we have to ask. Currently, they are saying what, you know, we've seen rigs uh, increase, but not sufficient enough to turn around the decline. You know, if oil goes to $80, $100 a barrel, uh, we'll see what happens. We'll have to reassess. But right now, they are pretty much staying true to their, staying within cash flows, paying down debt, and doing things of this nature article goes on to say, as most drillers continue to focus on paying down debt and returning capital to shareholders instead of pursuing growth, production in the five major U.S. oil shale plays may shrink another 485,000 barrels a day by the end of this year, finishing December with a 7.1 million barrels a day. The five major U.S. shale plays, the Permian, Eagleford, Bakken, Niobra and Anadarko produced a combined 7.2 million barrels a day in the first quarter of this year, about 68 percent of U.S. total U.S. oil output. A year ago, those plays produced a collective 8.9 million barrels. So, we're already down 1.7 million barrels in the shale plays, and this analysis is saying that by year end we could be down another half million barrels. Uh, in the context of a rising demand and OPEC um, discipline to me, that's going to lead to higher oil prices. Yeah, well, like I said, we'll have to reassess this. We'll have to see if, you know, I've I've been an advocate and I've said this many times, guys, watch what people do, not what they say. Right now they're saying and doing that they're not gonna expand production. We'll see if that changes. The, the We'll see if the money's there to finance it. We'll see if people wanna go through a third iteration of spending money on uh, drilling oil wells that don't produce any cash flow. That may be possible. I don't think it is, but we'll see. Okay, this is something I've been talking about, and this is happening a lot faster, I think, than most people anticipated. This is another reason why I'm extremely bullish on oil prices. Uh, They had a US Aviation Summit last week. Uh, The United Airlines CEO says domestic leisure travel demand has almost entirely recovered. Quote, business demand is still down over 80%, and of course, international borders, particularly long haul, are still closed. So those are huge chunks of our business that are still almost at zero, but it's really nice to see that recovery. Alaska Alaska Airlines CEO was similarly similarly optimistic, noting that the airline would earn positive cash flow for the month. United is flying more than 100% of its 2019 capacity to Mexico, the Caribbean, and Central America and South America, where some countries have reopened to Americans. Um, Look, the vaccinations, the whole thesis that we had, whether I'm not going to get into vaccinations, whether you believe in them or not, Uh, people are getting vaccinated, they're booking travel, they've been told they're going to be able to travel, that's the carrot, okay, that's been put out there um we'll see if uh you know what we're still seeing plunging um cases everything's going in the right direction and you know there are pockets around the world no doubt brazil's having a hard time and uh but uh we'll see this is happening a lot faster i think than people anticipated and um like you says you're already over 100 percent of their 2019 capacity to the caribbean and mexico You've seen pictures on Twitter, I'm sure, of the crowded airports and people packed in in Cancun and these places, okay? So it's happening. It's going to continue to happen. I don't see anything unless we have this big surge backwards. I just don't see that, okay? Um, but we'll see. Um, so far, the wind is at our back on this, and I think this is happening a lot faster than most people thought. So Open Insights is a newsletter I get, it's free. I'm gonna put a link to their Seeking Alpha article, but they have a very good article where they are talking about all of these things. Like I said, guys, you gotta follow smart people. There's so many smart people out there. Um, This article is really great if you uh, are bullish on oil, if you want to understand why you should get bullish on oil. But uh, they make the call or the questions asked, is there gonna be an energy crisis in 11 months? I think the name of the article is 11 months to an energy crisis. But anyways, uh, basically, the high points, energy prices and equities continue to consolidate as, ref- as reflation trade and investor interest drove prices ahead of fundamentals. Yes, that's we're seeing that also. Uh, we had this big move higher in oil, price, oil stocks prices, but uh, they're consolidating, but uh, I think with the oil price moving higher later into the year, we're just in spring now, spring starting to happen, we get into the summer tra- travel season, I believe oil demand's going to explode. Uh, oil demand continues to recover globally despite increased COVID cases in Europe. Anticipate OPEC plus Russia to hold firm on its production cut this week and energy prices slash equities to further consolidate and then climb higher into the summer. In fact, that's exactly what happened at the OPEC meeting. Uh, positive comments came out. Yes, they're going to increase production slightly, but they are not going to flood the market. That's, you know, what people wanted to hear. So uh, if we get a demand pickup and we, I just, you know, went over the fact that travel is coming back, positive comments. We haven't even gotten into the summer travel season. People are going to be driving all over the U.S. Forget about it. I mean, it's going to happen. People want to get out of their houses. Uh, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a record uh, travel season. In, in, at least in the U S the this article goes back and rehashes some of the things that they said before previous in the year and the same and why they feel there's going to be an energy crisis sooner rather than later uh, and oil prices could conceivably go over a hundred dollars a barrel uh, I'm not sure I agree a hundred percent on the timeline but I do think you know uh, 18 months two to three years out we are going to be over a hundred dollars a barrel that's not even in question in my mind, just because of the underinvestment. They go into that in the article. Okay, here's a chart that's in the article. It's also been going around Twitter. If you don't follow Eric Nuttall at Nine Point Partners on Twitter, you're stupid. I mean, this guy does, this is what he does all day. Uh, He's a Canadian energy fund manager, uh, smart guy, and uh, he puts all kinds of great charts like this up. So here's the year-over-year global crude surp- surplus onshore plus floating. So you'll note, it goes by weeks, right? So here's week one, you know, like January 1st of last year. And then, you know, COVID started to be coming into the news and becoming a problem in late February, early March. And that's when they started turning off the economy. And that's when the surpluses started increasing. Uh, ever since about July of this year, uh, we've seen because of the constraints, because of the shutdowns of uh, production, because of the pullback in investment, the drilling collapse in the U.S., you've basically seen, and what's happened uh, with OPEC uh, being disciplined, the supo- surplus has shrunk. We're almost back down to normal levels, okay? And uh, this, is, this is why oil prices have, are trading above $60 a barrel. Uh, so basically global inventory has fallen by 347 million barrels, 78% in 26 weeks. That's 1.9 million barrels a day, year over year tightness. So um, that's about what the shales have compressed also. So uh, increased demand running into constrained supply means higher prices. Uh, expect more of that. Follow Eric Nuttle on Twitter. Very smart guy. Follow Contrarian888 on Twitter. Twitter. You, these are smart people. Follow, you know, the start that cultivating this group of smart analyst type people that know what they're talking about. So, I don't want to get too far into this because it starts veering into political and personal opinions. But I just want to put this out. This was uh, another uh, thing I cribbed off Twitter. It's from a newsletter. Or a, a report that somebody wrote, Al, Alex Barrow, I think is the guy's name. But I got this from uh, Contrarian888's Twitter feed. And this goes talking about Vaclav Schmiel's uh, predict, you know, this is what I get into looking at energy consumption by developed countries, the United States, Europe, Japan. South Korea, places like this. Then looking at these large populations in places like China, India, Indonesia, okay, all these places that are developing, Africa, okay. And when you start applying, you know, as people start moving from the poor classes, going through their S curves, becoming wealthier as their countries uh, urbanize and industrialize, that has to be facilitated by energy. Energy underpins everything. Energy is an input component into everything, okay? Whether it's oil, coal, nuclear, electricity, renewables, whatever, some kind of input has to go into everything, energy input, okay? That's just the bottom line. Growing crops, right, requires machinery, but it also requires inputs from the sun itself, okay? So this is forgotten by most people people have this home country bias this looking at themselves or just their own little world and they don't extrapolate they're not good at doing that and so when i'm the point i'm making is is that if you think that demand's going down you're nuts and that's really the goal that they're talking about in the in the great reset in this new world order you know um, they're talking about as part of their plans to get to a 2050 carbon neutral whatever whatever that means we've already went over that we don't even know what that means um that you have to reduce energy consumption well how is that going to happen as these people around the world it doesn't mean reducing you know everybody says that we have to reduce energy consumption we have to become more efficient well move out of your twenty eight hundred fourth square foot house in the suburbs. We can, we can do that. We'll level everything and we'll go Soviet style. We'll go to Soviet block apartments. Everybody will get a certain allotment of square meters and you'll all ride public transportation. Hell no, no one wants to do that. So you, But the rest of the world's supposed to do that? I mean, the cognitive dissonance among most people is, well, I find it amusing at this point, but it's tradable, it's actionable. Let's look what Vakilov Shmuel says. With less than a sixth of all humanity, enjoying the benefits of the high-energy civilization. You know, the one we live in, the one that most of you guys are that are listening to that we live in and enjoy, that you like, the conveniences. A third of it, let's go back. With less than a sixth of all humanity enjoying the benefits of a high-energy civilization, a third of it is now engaged in a frantic race to join that minority. And more than half of the world's population has yet to begin this ascent The potential need for more energy is thus enormous. The utterly impossible option is to extend the benefits of two North American high-energy societies to the rest of the world, so going from 330 million people to 6.5 billion people, and that's just in 2005. It's more now. So this is like an older discussion, like a decade ago, but it's applicable today. This would require nearly 2.3, I don't know if that's zillion joules of primary energy, or slightly more than five times the current global supply. Five times the current global supply. Now do you get why that there's going to be a great reset? Now do you understand why that they have a virus that they locked you all down for, that 99.8% of the people survive and it's not a big deal because there's not enough resources for everyone. That's why. There's too many people and we live on a ball. That's what the elites, that's their mindset. There are too many of the other, untermenschen, okay? Under people, under men, Okay. The great unwashed that are consuming resources. There's not going to be enough for us, the great world uh, beaters, the the masters of the universe. Okay, it sounds dystopian. It sounds like a cheap movie, a spy movie, uh, Goldfinger or something. But that's what it is. You know, back when I was younger, I didn't believe in conspiracy theories. You know, I I I I was. I was open-minded, I, I, I felt most people were good intentioned. Well, I'm, that's wrong, they're not. And people all throughout history, if you read history, have done nothing. People of wealth and power have always conspired to gain more wealth and power and to make sure that their position of wealth and power is not challenged. Now, do you start to see what this is all about? It has nothing to do with a virus. They've proved they can lock you down for a virus that 99.8% or 7% of the people survive. Now they can lock you down for the next crisis, climate change, right? That's how we reduce consumption. We tell you that the earth's going to burn up, and you've already demonstrated that you'll sit in your house. See how it works? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not. We'll see, but we're not going to be able to increase the energy production in the world five times it's not possible the resources don't exist so Lynn Good the CEO of Duke Energy knows this this is what she said the company has set a goal of net zero carbon emissions by 2050 CEO Lynn Good also said Duke must build more renewable power So Duke Energy, one of the biggest U.S. power companies, isn't going to reach its carbon-cutting goals without the help of a controversial source, nuclear power. That's according to Chief Executive Officer Lynn Good, who spoke Tuesday at a panel called The Future of Energy. Nuclear power is relatively expensive, and some environmental groups worry about accidents and the storing of spent fuel, which is dangerous. Actually, it's not dangerous if it's done correctly. This is, you know, a couple canards that are in here. This is typical of why nuclear energy has been uh, retarded in its growth because we have these canards that are allowed to stand. Still, it's the only source of carbon-free power that can run around the clock. Exactly. Here's what Lynn Good, the CEO of the largest utility in the U.S., said: "The safety record here in the U.S. is extraordinarily strong. Frankly." I don't see a way for us to reach our carbon goals without nuclear being part of the equation. So, you know, it's all about base load, guys. Uh, the, you know, I, I I, don't really have a position anymore. I really don't care about, you know, it, the realization saying then you cannot run industrial technical civilizations on intermittent sources of power. You have to have base load. And nuclear, if you want to do that without burning coal, without burning natural gas, you're going to have to have this extremely large nuclear build-out. And I believe that's going to happen. The Biden administration's on top of it, okay? Um, they agree. There, uh, More and more news is coming out every day. This is the one thing I do agree with them. This might be the best thing that ever happened. If they would take some of that $2 tr- trillion infrastructure bill, devote a trillion dollars to it, to building nuclear plants, you'd solve a whole bunch of problems. You'd create, you know, build 100 new, brand new fourth-generation modern nuclear plants in the US, what would you do? You'd have all kinds of STEM jobs, engineering, science, technology, high paying craft jobs to build the things, they take three to four years to build, Uh, very high skilled, high paid operator and maintenance position jobs. Plus you would create a whole underlying infrastructure of support companies and company manufacturing because it's very technical manufacturing, okay? So for components. And, you know, mandate that this has to be done in the US, we have the capabilities. I mean, that would touch off a boom, like you wouldn't believe. And it would also reach the goals, I could get behind that. So um, I think that's where we're moving anyways, regardless, it's just going to take longer, and people are going to look back and say, gee, why did it take us that long to really realize that, but I think that's probably what's going to end up happening. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Uh, thanks for your listening. I know I got a little bit radical with you, but uh, you know, I'm not trying to be a conspiracy nut, but you know, think it out in your mind. What's really going on here? You know, we live on a dirt ball. Uh, it, 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 there's a limited amount of resources, but there's an expanding amount of demand. It's unlimited demand for, for resources. Think about it, okay? Is it a possibility that that's really the real agenda? It could be. All right. That's it for this week. Talk to you next week.